Please calm down. The music and everything, everything. Said, um, I went and bought me an outfit today that costed a lot of money today. You know what I mean? Because I figured that Wu-Tang was going to win. I don't know how y'all see it, but when it comes to the children, Wu-Tang is for the children. We teach the children. You know what I mean? Puffy is good, but Wu-Tang is the best. Okay? I want y'all to know that this is ODB and I love you all. Peace. I'm confused now. Yes, Wu-Tang is for the children. And that's the best way to start a new Backstory Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Colby Cole, and I had to start a new season fresh with one of the most influential groups in hip-hop history. I'm talking about the Wu-Tang Clan. If what you say is true, the Shaolin and the Wu-Tang could be dangerous. In this episode, I will take you back to the early days of the Wu. Little, come on, baby, pump it up! Cause we got something loud for yo, you now. Come on. Yo, yo, I got, I got, give I got, it I got. to me. Give it to me. I had a front row seat to the clan from their humble beginnings. Album coming out, right? Yo, we got right now, we got Protect Your Neck. You know what I'm saying? The Method Man out right now ringing bells. We're going we gonna to get into the album party around September. We got mad other projects going on. Dirty Bastard. Method Man got, you know, some little projects. We're saying we're going to kill on this shit. To tremendous success. Right, we had we put work in. I know, y'all did you know a lot of work. Y'all did Word. a lot of work. We said start like from that. the ground. Word, and it's still like it's that. It's still like that, you, you know? Because we ain't going to never go ahead and be too big that we can't go ahead and understand what we here for. Right. We here to, to go ahead and unify us, man. Then several classic solo projects. So only built for Cuban links is bros. They keeping they click strong. You know no what I'm saying? Okay. It's holding the fort down. Everything is strong and, and well built like well built like cement. Add on all the trials and tribulations. And I ain't really get to do no songs and no shows. I had to you know go back to work with Wu Tang and all that. Right. All that. You know what I'm saying? So you know I finally just got my chance to get ahead and just work on this. Even though it took me like around a year and a half. You know I went through a little bit of trouble. You know I don't want to jail. Right. And, and we cannot forget the brilliance of the late great. ODB. Yo, I lived, I got shot, I know y'all, y'all heard about this, so who cares? In the streets of New York, in the street of Philadelphia, you got some live mother hubbers and you got some whack mother hubbers. Sometimes the live get caught up in the whack. Sometimes the whack get caught up in the live. And then, you know, that basically explains all that job. This is the backstory of the Wu-Tang Clan. We have only 35 chambers. There is no 36. The first time I was introduced to the Wu-Tang Clan, their energy really stood out. I had experienced a bunch of hip-hop crews since day one of hip-hop, but nothing compared to the Wu-Tang Clan. They were all coming from struggle, poverty, Many were involved in the criminal justice system. And this 36-chamber album was really all their cards on the table. Usually an artist's first project is brilliant because of all the struggle that it took them to get to this creative place. I was so inspired by these guys, and their timing in hip-hop at that moment was much needed. So a few months ago, I was in Los Angeles, and I was driving to LAX, and I saw a billboard for the new Wu-Tang series on Hulu, and it really brought out a flood of emotions to kind of when it all began. So let me take you back to 1993. Hip-hop was in a strange place, especially for anyone on the East Coast. I grew up on the East Coast, 
and this is the birthplace of hip hop. So there was a sort of attitude about hip hop coming from New York and, you know, pushing out to the rest of the country. It was the birthplace. But in 93, the West Coast had taken over hip hop. A lot of the major projects that were selling all of the albums at that time were not New York-based or East Coast-based artists. You could say that the East Coast was in a dry spell after introducing hip-hop to the masses straight out of the boroughs of New York City. And this would, I would say, would be New York's first struggle, New York hip-hop's first struggle. It had to be hard, though. Think about it. You're the center of attention after birthing so many artists and classic albums. And then all of a sudden, the West Coast starts uh, developing their own artists, and they're selling way more albums than anybody from the East. And they're developing superstar artists. In the early 90s, the Wu-Tang Clan, along with Nas, Biggie, and of course, A Tribe Called Quest, brought it back to the East and paved the way for the next generation, which was just a few years later, which featured Busta, Jay-Z, the Fugees, uh, Bad Boy, Diddy, Puff, all of that stuff. All of this renaissance started to explode around the release of the Wu-Tang Clan's first album. In an industry with a lot of surprises, no one saw them coming. Think about it. A triple platinum debut, a quadruple platinum double sophomore album, several gold and platinum solo albums, Wu-Tang collectively has sold a staggering 40 million albums to date. Many hip-hop historians consider the Wu-Tang Clan one of the greatest hip-hop groups ever. Not a bad accomplishment for some kids from the hood. I mean, I mentioned a few minutes ago, several of them had issues with the criminal justice system. They came from severe poverty, and they were able to figure this out. I mean, these were the kind of kids that society will write off. The society still does that today. But somehow... From that birth, the Wu-Tang Clan. But forget about all that. I just want to let all y'all people know that old dirty bastard album, excuse me, I burped, but don't worry about it. My album be out March the 28th, right? See, what's it called, dog? It's called Dirty. (laughs) Doodoo, doggy, rough, rough. (laughs) <laughs> Return to the yeah, yeah. Thirty six chambers from the old dirty basket. When you see my album. <laughs> You're going to see something that you've never seen before. 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 That energy again from Old Dirty Bastard. And you're going to hear more of that in this edition of the Backstory Podcast. The Wu-Tang Clan members were all first-generation New York City children of hip-hop. They watched its initial success. Then 10 years into the genre, they take it to another level. So... How did all this happen? Here's a quick backstory hip-hop history lesson. America was in transition in the 90s. After the 80s and the effects of really bad governmental policies that directly affected poor black and brown people in America. You got to think about it. In the 70s, there was a lot of economic downturn in America. And whenever there's economic downturn, usually black and brown people suffer more than anybody else. 
So then you get to the 80s and you get to Ronald Reagan, who was the president, and he cut taxes and he did this whole Reaganomics thing. And Reaganomics wasn't good for black or brown people either. Then the onslaught of crack cocaine later in the 80s on urban communities across the country devastated inner city America. Out of that desperation birthed hip hop. I speak about this in earlier backstory episodes. It's well documented that hip hop started in the borough of the Bronx in New York City. Now, how did that come about? Well, in the the late 60s and early 70s, as white residents fled the city, many sections fell into dark times. High unemployment, heroin wreaked havoc on the city of New York and most other inner cities in America during that time. In 1975, the city of New York was broke. The state could no longer assist with help. The mayor famously at that time went to Congress and the White House to ask for help. And if the federal government does not help us, I think it will find the problem afterwards, which it would have to help us with, much more serious. His words were definitely ominous for the future. President Gerald Ford, who at that time was not an elected president, He was put in place after the resignation of Richard Nixon and the impeachment hearings that led to Nixon's departure. Gerald Ford famously told New York no for any federal funding. In fact, the New York Daily News ran the headline, Ford to New York, Drop Dead. Think about this. America's largest city was in a serious bind with an inadequate school system and social programs gone. Wide swaths of the Bronx in Harlem and Brooklyn became dangerous wastelands as landlords stopped maintaining their properties to force residents to leave. No heat in the dead of winter, broken bottles and trash left on the streets, abandoned cars. Sounds like the lyrics to Grandmaster Flash first mega hit the message. These same landlords would actually torch buildings for the insurance payments, leaving entire communities in the Bronx abandoned. There are several movies that depicted this era of New York City, Um, like the hip-hop classic Beat Street or the Wild Style movie. Uh, There was a cop thriller called Fort Apache, the Bronx. If you're not familiar, you should actually check these films out to see the grittiness of New York City during this late 70s, early 80s time period. There was even a horror film made in the early 80s called Wolfen about a pack of deadly wolves killing New Yorkers. These killer wolves would hold up in the abandoned buildings which littered the Bronx and Harlem's landscape. Looking back on that film, you can kind of say it was a little racist, cryptic view of American cities. The wolves in these abandoned buildings were sort of a metaphor for the poor people of color who lived in those communities after white flight and the chaos that ensued in these communities. In the classic hip-hop film Beat Street, They corralled one of these buildings and held parties there, stealing power and using space heaters. The times were tough and desperate. And it was out of this period, hip-hop was born. 1520 Sedgwick Avenue in the Bronx is the place where it all got started. Shout out to my man, Cool Hurt. The recent short-lived series um, on Netflix, The Get Down, explored this period in hip-hop history. As the 70s, then 80s continued... New York City was in a crisis, and out of this crisis was how this art form would change the world. Hip-hop came to be. I mean, think about it. The youth had nothing. They were let down by the city, the federal government, their school system. All that was consistent was the streets and the criminal justice system. There were a lot of bad things happening in our communities. In the 1993 classic Brian De Palma movie, Carlito's Way, the lead character, Carlito, played by Al Pacino, says... 
and Jay-Z recorded it years later, The Streets is Watching. She is watching all the time. So hip-hop kind of became the megaphone. Years later, Public Enemy lead Chuck D talked about this. He said, rap serves as the communication that they don't get for themselves to make them feel good about themselves. Rap is Black America's TV station. It gives a whole perspective of what exists and what black life is about. So my parents were divorced. One was living in Philadelphia. The other was living in New York City. And I spent my weekends and summers in New York during the 70s and 80s. So I had a front row seat to the hip-hop culture being born. Hip-hop was a way for young people to express themselves at a time when things seemed bleak. We lived in Harlem, but my older brother was a really good basketball player, and we would go to courts all throughout the city, but mainly because we lived in Harlem, we would go to the Bronx, and he would go and hustle some games. So on these travels, we would encounter some really tough characters, some really tough situations. And so while my brother played ball, I would wander around the parks and peep out what else was going on. So at that time, block parties were sort of the big thing starting at dusk. DJs would bring out their sound systems and hotwire the power from the street lights, and everybody in the neighborhood would come out. There would be rap battles as a DJ would play popular R&B songs, looping the beats back and forth for the MC a.k.a. the master of ceremony, to do his thing. There will be battles. One MC will become crews of MCs. One of the earliest battles I can remember was Cold Crush Brothers versus the Fantastic Five, a.k.a. the Fantastic Romantics. You got to really love these names. These battles were legendary for creativity and the best one-liner comebacks. Now, one of the members of the Cold Crush Brothers was Grandmaster Cass. He happened to be managed by a guy named Henry, who at the time had a part-time job at a pizzeria in New Jersey. One day, Henry was working in the pizza shop, rapping one of Cav's verses. Joey Robinson happened to come into the restaurant and love what Henry, or his rhyme name Hank, was rapping about and asked him to join a group that his mother, the great Sylvia Robinson, was forming called the Sugar Hill Game. By the way, Sylvia Robinson was an R&B singer and wrote um, a really good song for Al Green in 1973. The song was about sex, and Al thought it was a little too much for him, so she recorded it herself, and it became a number one record called Pillow Talk. Anyway, she recorded a few albums, then became a record executive starting uh, one of hip-hop's first big labels, Sugar Hill Records. And the first group that was on that label was the Sugar Hill Gang. She wanted to capitalize on the energy that hip-hop was having in the New York City area. Hank knew he couldn't rap, so he went back to Kaz and asked him to ghostwrite his verse for a song for this new group, the Sugar Hill Gang. That song was Rapper's Delight. It was recorded on the first take. The music for Rapper's Delight was basically Good Times from Chic, which in 1979 was the biggest disco record in the world and one of the biggest records in New York City. Actually, a few months before Rapper's Delight even came out, Debbie Harry, a.k.a. the artist named Blondie, who had a big song called Rapture, she was influenced by the hip-hop energy building in the clubs in New York City because at that time, punk and hip-hop was sort of like bubbling in the club scene in the same place in New York City. So you could go into these clubs and you would have all these different types of uh, folks, some liking rock, some liking punk. Um, definitely the hip-hop, R&B, disco stage was kind of ending. So all this energy was happening. And Blondie, or Deborah Harry, she was very influenced by that. In the late 70s, 
Blondie was performing at the Palladium, which is a classic club in New York City, with The Clash, which is a punk group, and Chic, which is a disco group. And during Chic's performance, Fab Five Freddy, who is himself a hip-hop icon in New York City, he was definitely an early pioneer. He was actually an artist as well, and he would go on to host one of hip-hop's first national TV shows, UMTV Raps. He jumps on the stage with the Sugar Hill Gang during Chic's performance of Good Times. A few months later, Niles Rogers and Bernard were at a club in New York City and Rapper's Delight was playing and they freaked out. As the story goes, Sugar Hill Records actually thought they could just put the song out without crediting Bernard Edwards and Niles Rogers. Well, they sued and received credit and royalties. Rapper's Delight was hip-hop's first major hit, opening up the genre to audiences around the world. Rapper's Delight was catching lightning in a bottle. It went double platinum and the Sugar Hill game became big stars. Big Bad Hank's verses were being written by Kaz, who you can say was hip-hop's first ghostwriter. And if you listen carefully to Rapper's Delight, Hank even uses Kaz's alter ego, Casanova Fly, in the rhyme. Hank promised Kaz that he would get credit and royalties, but that, of course, never happened. Most of the people who knew who the Cold Crush Brothers were and they heard Rapper's Delight thought it was Kaz on the song, not Hank, because it was Kaz's verse, but Hank was doing it. So that's a little hip-hop history. But anyway, back to the Cold Crush Brothers. They were building up their rep as a master rap crew. Then on July 3rd, 1981, these two crews, the Cold Crush and Fantastic Five, battled it out in Harlem World for $1,000, which at the time was a ridiculous amount of money. Cold Crush won the battle, which has been debated for over 40 years. But what also happened that night was that the battle was recorded, then pushed out on the streets as one of the first major mixtapes. The following year, they reenacted their battle on the big screen in the hip-hop classic movie Wild Style. I love that scene in the movie, the way it was choreographed with both crews on a basketball court, toe-to-toe going at it, rhyming. The Cold Crush Brothers ended up touring all over New York City. So think about it in this moment. You've got this mixtape of this battle happening that people are listening to because everybody had boomboxes and cassettes. The radio station started playing um, Rapper's Delight. It became a big hit, not just in New York, but everywhere. And then in the verse, you hear sort of like, whoa, wait a minute. Is that Kaz? You know, what's going on from the Cold Crush? And then it started expanding to all five boroughs, Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut, And sitting back, it would help inspire a crew that would change hip-hop 10 years later. So, after Rapper's Delight, there were an onslaught of MCs and groups giving hip-hop its first golden age. It was an explosive period with several iconic stars heralding this new art form. Three cousins, two from Brooklyn and one from Staten Island, watched and plotted as hip-hop took shape. Not just through music, but through art and dance. Um, You got raw talent here. Yeah, raw talent. Definitely. So how long have you been dancing? Like, they'll dance together. Yeah, well, well, like I like kind of like choreography, but so far it's like like the, the stunts stuff like that. How they gonna do it? Mm-hmm. I don't participate with an actual dancer. You participate with dancer. Yeah. How long have you been dancing? I've been dancing, you know, since I was a little kid. A little kid. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I can't, I can't. I, you know, I always had a funky style when it came to dance. Mm-hmm. Well, I got this dance called the A song. Those cousins consisted of Robert Fitzgerald Diggs. His mother admired the political brothers, President John F. Kennedy and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, who sadly were both assassinated in the 60s. Robert had a unique childhood. He was born in Brooklyn, spent his summers in North Carolina, then spent his formidable years in Steubenville, Ohio, where as a teen, he got into trouble with drugs and petty crimes. 
He had formed a group back in New York City with his two cousins, Gary Grice and Russell Jones. They all loved hip-hop and started to chart their path by working together, forming a group called Force of the Imperial Master, also known as the All In Together Now crew. Each member recorded under an alias. Grice was the genius. Diggs was Prince Rakim, or the scientist, and Jones was the specialist. The three cousins as a group never signed to a major label, but got the attention of some folks in the New York City rap scene. Biz Marquis at the time, who was on a major hip-hop label, noticed them, and in the early 90s, he helped the genius get signed to his label, Cold Chillin', whose artist lineup at that time featured, check this out, Big Daddy Kane, of course, Biz, Marley Maul, MC Shan, I mean, Marley Maul was one of the great early producers, and Cool G Rap. These artists were some of the biggest names of that era. So for the genius, a hip-hop kid, this was a big deal. Prince Rakim would sign at that time to Tommy Boy, another powerhouse hip-hop label early in the game. Now, their roster at the time, De La Soul, um, Digital Underground, Queen Latifah, Stetsasonic, Naughty by Nature. I mean, at this time, you could probably say Prince Rakim and the Genius had made it, both signed to major hip-hop label deals. But that is one of the biggest misnomers in the music industry, getting signed is hard, but developing a brand and having sustained success is the hard work that most fail at. This is when I first encountered the beginnings of what would eventually become one of hip-hop's supergroups. You could say almost born around this. Oh, you know, right. Yeah, it's in our genes, you know. <laughs> and, um, been doing it for a long time, tearing up parties, waxing MCs, just anything you could name as far as MCing. So, you know, we come a long way. You know, it's like... It's a long story, a very long story, you know. He's always the hypest in each town. Where he lived at, he was a hypest MC. I lived at. Where are you guys from, you Brooklyn. Brooklyn, yeah. you know. I was from the East. He's from that style, you know. He flies MC out in this town. I am. But he had to stand down and fly MC out there. Okay. Now, being a first-generation hip-hop kid myself, I had the same experiences that they had. The genre rapidly expanded across the country. Rappers were becoming big stars. It was mainly a New York thing, but soon hip-hop would have crews all over the country. The West Coast started to have its explosion in the late 80s and early 90s. Eazy-E, N.W.A., Ice Cube, under the production savant Dr. Dre, would have a tremendous impact culturally. I got into radio as a kid in the late 80s, and in 1991, while I was in college, I was one of a handful of hip-hop radio hosts on major commercial radio stations. I grew up on Red Alert, Mr. Magic, and Chuck Chill out in New York, and Lady B in Philadelphia. They inspired me to represent hip-hop culture on the radio, and the show I started in Philly was called Radio Active. Now, during this time, hip-hop music was relegated to late nights and weekends, so these shows became super important to the hip-hop ecosystem. You still had Red Alert in New York. You had Sway and Tech in the Bay Area. You had the late Pink House in Chicago. Every city started to have shows for the culture. There were major rap indie labels like Profile, which had Run DMC, Rob Bass, and Special Ed. And, of course, Tommy Boy and Cold Chillin', all New York based. But all the other major labels were paying attention and would start rap divisions and sign artists from all over the country. So in 1991, Cold Chillin', which was then a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Records, a major label, they signed a young genius, and they brought him to Philadelphia to interview on my show. 
And in the studio, I have a young man. He's on the Cold Chillin' label. Well, that's a real famous label. Got a lot of famous rappers on it. He's brand new. Goes by the name of The Genius. What's up, yo? Peace. How you doing, man? All right, man. Welcome to Philly. Thanks, man. What's up with the title, The Genius? Explain that to me. Are you a genius, first yeah, of all? Yeah, I'm a lyrical genius, man. Oh, I lyrical mean, genius. I'm a genius also. You know, um, a genius just represents one with a certain indi individual talent or gift. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, I have that certain individual talent within me that, that I let out on records or tapes or whatever, you know, to show and prove the genius ability. So, you know, I'm so, a genius. So how long you been rapping? For about 14, 13 years. Oh, so you've been out there for a while, back back in old school days. I used to rap all over. I started like a long time ago, back in the days when they had, when Sugar Hill and Cool Hurt and all of them came out. I just started writing back then and just became a habit. Like, it was, I'm like addicted to it. I just had to write and write, so I, I oh, do so it you're a hip-hop junkie, huh? Definitely. <laughs> As you can hear, he was a first-generation hip-hop kid and was inspired by the energy of the culture. I asked him about what type of MC he was. Well, basically, I'm freestyle, hardcore, lyrical, running in a party, jumping on the stage, grabbing a mic and just getting busy, or whatever the case may be. During this time period, it was standard that all rappers in interviews proved that they could rap on site, do a freestyle. It was always something that they did. So peep out the genius with ODB providing the beatbox back in the day. <laughs> Oh, that sounds kind of ill. Yeah. <laughs> you know something? Um, let me tell you about the genius. Yo, I have a style of my own. My hands are like vice grips holding a microphone. I flow smooth with rhymes that are rough. You know why? Because I can't get enough. So I want practice. Not what I preach, but what I teach. In which the critics say it's improper speech, but it's proper. Only to those who understand why I walk on stage with the mic in my hand as brothers look on. Then label me as a psycho. Just because I jump on stage and grab a microphone from a so-called dead to the MC who admires me with jealousy and envy. My rhymes are delivered with style and potential. Words are flowing smoothly and a sequential order. Be dealing, hit and take, recorder stuffed inside pockets of those I'll slaughter. But I don't get upset when what? When you fight and steal? I go home and write some ill back to poetry. Page after page, imagining the scenery on stage. I catch flashbacks of the seminar as I crush the dreams of a wannabe star. Self-explanatory taught me words were shifted in a unbidden style because I'm gifted and talented with the lyrical ability. Found a, up a hip-hop facility. Damaged MCs who dare to enter the center and then challenge the inventor of an impartial rhyming status followed by um, an irrelevant apparatus. The way I come off on the mic is attractive. I can make a quadriplegic hyperactive with lyrics of friction causing mics to spark. My style couldn't be bitten by a shark. Now, all this was before the Wu-Tang Clan existed. And you can hear the genius flow and the type of MC he would become. A few months later, I would have the same experience with Prince Rakim, who, like his cousin, the genius, was on a promotional tour with his label, Tommy Boy. At the time, he had a song called Ooh, We Love You, Rakim. This was a very novelty type of song. Nothing like you hear from uh, what Rahim the RZA would become. So you need to Google the video. Uh, we love you, Raheem. 
and you'll get an understanding of what I'm talking about if you're not familiar. It's really interesting now looking back how much the cousins um, ODB and um, the RZA resemble each other. So you'll see a young uh, Prince Raheem, but he kind of looks a bit like ODB with a sea of women of all races fawning all over him with a catchy hook. In the song, you can hear a bit of his rhyme style that will go to another level years later. Yo, I'll be poetic, energetic, majestic, alphabetic, the fresher processor, and also magnetic. The total essence in my appearance that makes a girl get wet and sweat till she drinks. The MC pleaser, no, not a freezer. Yes, I am fresh and the big breast squeezer. Bachelor, warrior, others are inferior. I'm the MC conqueror who is superior. Both the genius and Prince Raheem's first albums weren't hit projects. The hip-hop industry has always been so competitive, and both of these artists found themselves dropped from their first deals. The genius commented on it several years later, stating that the label basically put his album out and didn't do much promotion, and he was proud of his work. He does, however, get a second chance, which we will explore later in this backstory episode. So this is no surprise. It happens to so many artists in every genre. The music business is cold-blooded. Just because you have talent doesn't mean you get success. So much hard work, highs and lows, go into a successful project, which only makes the next part of this story inspiring to anybody with a dream. Stop the music for a Stop second the music, man. Hold on. Time One, two. out. One, two. Yo, Stop check it out. Music for a second Cut the something. music, Hammer. Yo, hammer. that shit, money. Hammer. What is wrong with you, Cut man? that shit, Hammer. Crazy is all together now. Stupid I'm motherfucker. I'm going to say peace to the genius. Peace to every black people out there. Motherfucking divine. I'm going to tell all your black baby. people out there. Peace to the gods. What is wrong? I'm going to say, yo. The black man is God and the black woman is the earth and the queen, all right? All right? All right? I said all right? All right. goddamn right. Uh, and we're going to do it up like this. Hold on, hold Two, two. Yo, turn up twice or some shit. Yo, Pump give us a little um, sound, two, check. A little sound check. Baby. A little, come on, baby. Pump it up. Because we got something One, live for yo. you now. Come on. Yo, yo I got, I got Give I got, it yo. to me. Give it to me. <laughs> now. That's the rawness of ODB and Prince Rahim as he segged into RZA performing at this community event back in the day. But anyway, back in Steubenville, Ohio, Robert Griggs, a.k.a. Prince Rakim, was charged with attempted murder after a shootout, and that moment changed the trajectory of his life. He was acquitted and decided to dedicate his time and effort to more positive things in music. So, after the stalled success of Cousins, the genius, who was now going by the name the Jizza, and Prince Raheem, who was now going by the name the Rizza, plus ODB, they established the Wu-Tang Clan in Staten Island in 1992. And they had a plan. Shaolin is just like, it's like Shaolin is just, it's more. It's like thousands and hundreds of thousands of more people coming right behind us with the same thought, the same aspect, the same idea, everything. Everything is going to be in one compound. We're just trying to make it like it used to be. You know what I'm saying? Peace. That's all. So Wu-Tang, what does that mean? Like their peers before them. For instance, KRS-One, his name stood for Knowledge Reigns Supreme over nearly everyone. Big Daddy Kane, the Kane stood for King Asiatic, Nobody's Equal. Wu-Tang had many meanings. Wu-Tang. I mean, shit, we still yep. told you <laughs> for years. Yep. Witty, unpredictable talent, natural game, wisdom of the universe, truth, and naturally gifted. They had other names, too. Like, we usually take niggas garments, witty, unpredictable talent, and natural game. Wisdom of the Universe, and the Truth of Allah for the Nation of the Gods. Seven more MCs will be added to the clan. Clifford, Method Man Smith, 
Corey Raekwon the Chef Woods, Dennis Ghostface Killer Coles, Lamont You God Hopkins, Jason Inspector Deck Hunter, Elgin Master Killer Turner, and eventually Daryl Cappadonna Hill. They will release their first single, Protect Your Neck, on their own white label in the winter of 1993. Tongue is a sword, and we chopping off all corny MC's heads. That's why we came with Protect Your Neck. We've been watching Kung Fu flicks too, though. That's that's like that's like my like my my, my, my favorite joints. You know what I'm saying? So I'll be into the Kung Fu flicks and everything. You know what I'm saying? Just just you know, it's a regular thing for everything for everybody. You know what I'm saying? If you into that, 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 you into that. Ain't nothing. You know what I'm saying? A little small thing. Just we rhyme. We like to rhyme and, and we murder MCs when we do our thing. DJs along the East Coast started to play it, and instantly folks kept asking, who and what is the Wu-Tang Clan? Another reason why the people like us, man, because you like you like like in the clan, it's non-members. It's non-mentalities going to work every day. So so it might not, you might not, you might not be able to adapt to what I'm dealing with, but you might be able to adapt to what he's dealing with, because you might have went through it. So like I said, you know, it's like it's like all these minds is working all the time. So it's like, yo, you know they from the street because the way they talk and all of that. So it's like people could people could see it. They they they, they, could, they you know they, the too. they feeling it. They so feel that they feel that strong vibe that we giving it. And, and and like I said, man, it's just that yo, they love it. They love it, man. It's a big it's mind. It's a big. Something. It's a big percentage of poor people going on this earth. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So they can they can get with the actual actually. You know what I'm saying? Feel what we feel. You know what I'm saying? And there ain't nobody trying. I'm always going to be on some ghetto ground. Because I don't know, man. I, when I moved out to Florida like two years ago, man, I started getting on some country stuff. You know what I'm saying? Coming back with sandals and, you know what I'm saying? So I had to come back home, you know what I'm saying? Keep it real with my brothers, you know what I'm saying? And they just brung something out of my heart, and I just brung something out of their heart, you know what I'm saying? I kind of mentioned it earlier. Protect Your Neck was unlike anything we had ever heard before. The clan were creatively using Chinese culture through kung fu movie clips in their music with intoxicating grimy beats. There were also so many MCs, so it was kind of overwhelming to figure out who was who. The RZA was establishing a new kind of sound in hip-hop at a time when Dr. Dre and the West Coast sound he had created was dominating urban culture. The Wu was like a perfect storm because most of the labels and the artists were majority in the New York City area. And when you're not on top of the game, yet all the industry is based where you are, it can become uncomfortable. All the culture creators in New York were looking for something to bring the energy that established hip-hop back east. When I protect your neck, is going out. Really, it's going out to anybody. You, know, so you got to protect your neck. You know what I'm saying? For you, for you wisdoms out there who look good, you can protect that body. You know what I'm saying? But um, you got to protect your neck. If you don't protect your neck, you're going to lose your head. Wu-Tang coming through with the sharp sword. You know what I'm saying? The response to protect your neck was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, they threw out a white label. This vinyl was floating around. All the DJs started playing it. Then radio started playing it. The lyrics, the flow, the complexity were next level for the average MC at that time. Wu-Tang started to field offers from labels. Keep in mind that the RZA and Jizza were experienced in dealing with labels. Their experience actually left a bad taste so they could see through all the BS. In fact, years later, the Jizza did a song called Labels. You need to go and listen to him talk about the industry at that time. But even in Protect Your Neck, he talks a little bit about A&Rs at labels. So they were very well versed in how this worked. Now, remember, I said all the major labels were hungry to find the next stars. So the Wu-Tang Clan decided to sign with a new and up-and-coming independent label called Loud Records. 
mainly because most of the other labels wanted solo rights for each artist in the group or they didn't understand the group. And the loud CEO, his name was Steve Rifkin, waived that request and allowed them to sign solo deals outside of Loud if they didn't like the deal he offered. And that really sold the group. Loud was a year old at this time, and Wu-Tang would be the first multi-platinum album success on that label. Steve Rifkin was a shrewd record guy. His father was legendary label head Jules Rifkin, who had a roster full of R&B acts in the 60s and 70s, including the great James Brown. Steve Rifkin worked for his father and learned the music business at an early age. Now, he didn't have the big budgets like the other labels, but him allowing them to pursue solo projects outside of Loud, looking back right now, was brilliant because all the other companies would put serious money behind the Wu solo projects, which in essence would only make the Wu-Tang brand even bigger. When I first met them, Risen, I've been trying to track him down forever. He didn't have an answer machine, he didn't have anything. And then um, he finally um, showed up one day. He came up out of nowhere. Right. You know, I'm with Eastwood from the Alcoholics. We hear the record. He goes, I'll be back in an hour. Yeah. And he brings the, an office from as wide as from here to the end of this table. Right. Wall. Right. So it's me and Eastwood and also the whole clan comes to. Yeah. And they start performing to the record, protect your neck. Then the doors closed. I don't, know, I don't know if they set me up or if it was really a real intern or whatever, but some motherfucker comes running through the door and says, that's that shit. Wow. And um, I look at him, and to this day, I've never seen this guy again. The Wu-Tang loud deal was a boon for Steve Rifkin. And he had a really good run at loud, eventually launching the careers of Mob Deep, Big Pun, Exhibit, Dead Prez. The Jizza talked about their original deal. We got a deal with Loud, RCA, Steve Rifkin, but we didn't get any money. So we, it was kind of like good and bad because we didn't really get a, a big advance mm. at that time. We were just starting off, but we had so much freedom as far as our deal, and it allowed us to pursue solo careers and branch out. And, and no one was really doing that at that time. So it kind of just opened doors for a whole lot of other artists to follow suit and be able to be Jizza, part of Wu-Tang, and be Jizza, who's a solo, and then get with two other guys and form another group. So mm. that's what Wu-Tang started. The first time I encountered the whole clan was in Atlantic City in April 1993 at the Impact Convention. This was their first major industry event, which at that time was mainly about R&B music. You see, the senior leaders of the black music divisions of all the labels were not too keen on hip-hop in its first decade. At Impact, it was all the top people in R&B radio and records. The Jack the Rapper convention, which happened in Atlanta, was going through the same thing. The BRE in Palm Springs as well. These guys were forced to embrace the music because it was taking over the industry, especially black music. Side note, I recall at that same Impact convention in 1993, there was a new group on Epic Records, again, a major label that was signing hip hop called Hood Rats. This is Michael Jackson, Luther Vandross uh, label, and they were signing hip hop artists as well. Now, the Hood Rats were a clone of Onyx which was on Def Jam, which were discovered and produced by Jam Master J from Run DMC. They had come out a year earlier and had a lot of success. The most unoriginal thing about the music business still to this day is someone comes along with a new style, vibe, etc. It blows up and then every other label rushes to find their version of that artist. 
So the Hood Rats had a song called Bootlegger, which was about confronting bootleg tape sellers on the streets and breaking their legs. You should Google the video. The hook was, if you bootleg, you get your leg broke, nigga. They were performing at this Saturday night awards banquet at Impact. Again, this would usually be a very R&B vibe, but the industry was quickly changing. Needless to say, in this room full of suit and tie, black shoe and gown crowd, this performance didn't go over so well. Now, I was a young guy in the business who loved hip hop and was always fighting internally at my radio station to get these songs on the radio. In fact, when they wanted to play a hip hop song, usually at night, late at night, they'd come to Colby and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or I would go to them. And that's how we would play the songs on the station. And my station at that time famously had a no rap work day. To take a wider view, the power structure in R&B and black music at that time was very uncomfortable about hip hop music because it was from the streets. It was the hood and it was very male with constant references to drugs, sex and violence while R&B at that time was clean, safe, and female-friendly. Little did they know that years later, R&B would be just as hood as hip-hop. In fact, it started right around that time. Uh, Jodeci was really that first R&B group to really kind of get raunchy and grimy. I mean, bottom line at this time, R&B was bougie and hip-hop was hood. The late Jackie Paul, who handled all things rap for impact magazine fought her own battles internally to give hip hop a lane at this impact conference. She saw how the music business was quickly changing and all these same labels with R and B departments or black music departments started to have hip hop departments with major budgets. So if you're running a conference, you need label support to keep it going. And Jackie saw that early impact would also have awards. So a lot of major radio players in hip hop would get these awards. And several years into my career, I ended up getting this award and it meant so much for my career to help me connect with a lot of different people that I never knew before. Just being some kid that was thrown on a radio at uh, 20 years old. So anyway, once again, it's 1993 at the impact convention. Steve Rifkin had just signed the Wu-Tang. Protect Your Neck was moving from mix show to radio airplay. They were unleashed at the Bally's Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City. What I remember most about the Wu-Tang was my good friend Sincere, who at the time was the, running the rap department at Island Records. He allowed them to stay in one of his rooms because, you know, when you had a black music department or whatever, you would just get a whole bunch of rooms and then you would just funnel people into different rooms. So he allowed them to stay in a room and they ran up the room service and the bill was just crazy. And Sincere had to call Steve Rifkin to get him to pay the bill. I mean, we can laugh about it now, but my man was stressed and I happened to come up on him in a moment when he was dealing with it. A few months later, I would have my first interview with the Klan which almost got me fired. I'll tell that story in a minute. But first, let me take you to June 18th, 1993. This is the Wu-Tang Clan, my first interview with them. What's going on? There's a lot of you, so one by one, say what's up on the mic. And make sure you speak on the mic, brother. Prince Rakim, a.k.a. the Ruzza. Peace. Shalom, Ray Korn, the chef, baby. Peace, the judge of the genius in the house. Muppet man, the Boulemont, peace. Yeah, the lyrical assassin inspector deck in the house. Well, of course, he's chiller. He's somewhere in there. Well, well yeah. Okay. Old dirty bastards in the house. Okay, now, the Wu-Tang Clan, how'd you fellas come together? Well, first of all, where you guys from? From New York. Okay. Now I'm New York. Shout out, New York. Okay, did y'all grow up together? Yeah, we all, yo, yo, we all... We got like eight years together. Yeah, we all, we all grew up together. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? We all knew each other for mad years. Some of us cousins, family. You know what I'm saying? We all... Okay. So y'all real tight-knit? 
tight new crew. We tight like virgins. Okay. <laughs> and then like that. So yo, y'all got a fat new uh, album coming out, right? Yo, we got right now. We got protect your neck. You know what I'm saying? The Method Man out right now, ringing bells. We going, we going to get into the album party around September. We got mad other projects going on. Dirty bastard. Method Man got you know, some little projects. You know We're going to kill on this shit. Okay, now explain the, the title Wu Tang Clang and a, a little bit about what you got, where you guys are coming from. Yo, I want to explain that. Yeah. Yo, check it out. Wu Tang Clan. I'm saying Wu Tang. I'm saying it's a sports style. It's like a sports style of kung fu or whatever. We, we, we use our mental, we use our, you know, saying our, our mental more than our food. And our tongue is like a something. So we coming through. I'm saying just tell everybody to protect you. Everything is real with us. I'm saying everything is 100 real. The clan means family. The goal is a family. I'm saying we can't be divided. We uncomfortable. We coming. You challenge one, you challenge all. There's no more one on ones. So to all the other MCs out there, whoever feel they want to bring some moss towards the Wu Tang Clan or whatever whatsoever, I'm saying you gotta take us all on. Word. Well, question, kid. You ain't gonna make it through one killer B because it's, it's mad deep with us. Okay, and there's a whole bunch of y'all here too. There's a whole bunch <laughs> of us, but also, but also our goal is, you know, saying, is, you know, what I'm saying to show true hip hop fans, brothers who've been around, saying brothers who love total underground hip hop, we bringing that sound back to the airways. Now, who's producing the Wu Tang Clan? Do you guys do it amongst yourselves, or do you bring other people in? Uh, well, right, right now, right now, I'm doing all the production. You know what I'm saying Prince Joaquin, aka the Rizza. Okay. But um, everybody in here got the crazy talent. They all got thoughts and ideas, mm -hmm. and they starting to learn how to make their own stuff. So soon, you're gonna have eight killer dope lyricists and eight killer dope beat programmers, and whatever other form of hip hop there is the master. We're gonna master that. So that night, the clan was packed into a passenger van. They were coming from New York City on a Friday night, stuck in traffic, and hadn't, hadn't been fed. I was working by myself that night, and they came through the station. They were hungry. They were tired. They got all the food out of the vending machines, and the hallways leading to the bathrooms were littered with trash everywhere. My PD was furious. He ended up sitting next to Steve Rifkin, just so happened the next day, at industry vet Hiram Hicks' wedding. And Steve caught an earful from my boss. He also laid into me, but I tried to explain him, like, because he said I had too many people in the station. I was like, dude, like, it's the Wu-Tang Clan. What am I going to just invite two people in? Like, I had to invite them all in. And, of course, you know, it all worked out. Um, and a few years later, another Wu-Tang member got me into trouble. And I'll explain that uh, later in the podcast. So back to Protect Your Neck. It wasn't the only Wu energy getting people excited. That white label I told you about that they had given out had a B-side with the single Method Man, and both songs took off in the spring and summer of 1993. The album was highly anticipated. See, like, if you listen to the Clan album, you know, we, we deal with songs that make you want to cry. Make, we, make, we, make, we, make, we deal with songs that make you want to fight. We got skits you know? that make you want to laugh. Word up. So it's like, like he said, we hitting from every angle, man. And this was the beginning of each personality in the group showing their skills. Meth was the first, and he was quickly signed by Def Jam as a solo artist. ODB signed to Elektra. The Jizza signed to Geffen. Raekwon signed to Lau. Ghostface signed to Epic. Again, they had one of the most unique deals in hip-hop. Their debut album, 36 Chambers, was released in November of 1993. 36 Chambers, 36 Chambers is like our backyard to where we make all our lyrical, our music, our sounds, whatever, all our styles or whatever. Like that's, the the, that's the home. That's the that's word. Like he said, that's the cave. That's the treehouse, whatever you want to call it. It's like I could bring you through a crazy chamber. He could bring you through a chamber. He could bring you through a chamber. But when we come together... 
It's on, you know what I'm saying? It's gonna be chambers coming from everywhere. You're gonna be getting different feelings, different thoughts, different vibes. I mean, it's gonna be you. You're gonna be feeling sad at one second. The next minute you feel like, ah! You know what I'm saying? And the next minute you just on some old, on some cool out lounge. You know what I'm saying? 36 chambers is basically going through different degrees of life. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, see, see, every day, every day you go through a chamber. You make it to that next day. So you're going through a chamber, you know? And we just take you through our chambers right now. You know, it's 30, like we saying, it's 36 points in the body. You know what I'm saying? 10 degrees apart. So that's dealing with 360 degrees right there. And see, the clan has 360 degrees within them of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. You know, so it's like it's like that's that's what the chambers is. That's what that's what 36, 36 chambers is dealing with. You know, life. everyday life, man. When we hit you with a chamber, it's taking over your whole body. You know what I'm saying? You feel the music when we yeah. deliver. It's an emotion that you gonna yeah. feel. See, like if you listen to the Clan album, you know we we deal with songs that make you want to cry. Make we make we make we make we deal with songs that make you want to fight. We got skits. You know, that make you want to laugh. Word up. So it's like, like he said, we hitting from every angle, man. You check the flicks, the Wu-Tang and the Shaolin, they were always at war with each other. So it's kind of it's contradicting itself, but where we come from, it's all like we all, where we're from, it's like everybody's killing each other out there anyway. It's like a big, giant concentration camp, you know what I'm saying? And we got to get up out. Right now, we paving the way for our peoples to come up out of that. We giving our peoples jobs and all that, man, keeping it real. So you know about Protect Your Neck, you know about Method Man, the third single was Cream, Cash Rules Everything Around Me, an instant classic. You can't knock what's real, you know what I'm saying? We telling the truth, man. You know what I'm saying? Even, even in Cream, that, that, that's, that, he, that, that's that brother and that brother right there showing the way of life that they grew up. You know what I'm saying? This is what they had to do to get that money. Because it's like, yo, come on, man, minimum wages, man, that, that, ain't, that ain't my style, man. I've been, my father been working all his life, man. He, 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 can't, he ain't even got himself an own house, you know what I'm saying? So, so I want to I show my father, I, I know my father want me to walk better, you know what I'm saying? So I want to have things to go buy my father a big mansion or whatever, whatever, how, however go. Just to, just to say, yo, dad, you know what I'm saying? You, you, you ain't do nothing. You made a son and your son came out and boom, <laughs> there you go, baby. You know what I'm saying? Cream was the story of the group. RZA created a very soulful track sampling As Long As I Got You from the Carmels. It garnered airplay all across the country. It was a hood classic. Last year, a new artist by the name of Nicole Buss, who was from Amsterdam, actually remade the original Carmel song. And most people listening to it thought she was remaking Cream. But she used the sample version of the Carmel song that the Wu-Tang used. And You was the number one record uh, last year. But back to the 36 Chamber album. Wu-Tang followed that up with Can It Be So Simple, which featured a smooth Gladys Knight sample. The Wu-Tang Clan were establishing themselves as major artists in the industry, cutting through all the East Coast, West Coast division that was happening. Going through track after track on this album, the Wu were a new force to be reckoned with. Another standout song on the album was Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing to F With, which was really the best explanation of the group in a song. Years later, Wyclef would coach the legendary Carlos Santana to do his guitar riff on the Maria song based on Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing to F With. If you listen to it, that from Carlos Santana is based on this song, Wu-Tang Clan Ain't Nothing to Mess With. 36 Chambers by Shore was a classic. Nothing Disappointed. Other tracks that brought attention was Bring the Ruckus, Shame on a Nigga, Clan in the Front. It was those beats and samples that were everything. The mystery of chess boxing. 
really ghost shut that track down. One of my favorites on the album was Tears, which sampled After Laughter from Stax artist Wendy Renee. See, we didn't know these samples, which made these songs fresh to a growing audience thirsting for hip-hop around the world. What made folks fall in love with the Wu-Tang was that they had dope music, but they were very much like us, very relatable. Someone in the clan was like somebody in your neighborhood. Their energy kind of reminded me of Run DMC, who at the time, when they came out, you know, before Run DMC, you had Grandmaster Flash and, you know, um, you had uh, Soul Sonic Force and they were all really gimmicky. But Run DMC and Jam Master J were B-boys, Lee jeans, Adidas, leather jackets. I mean, that's what we were wearing in the hood. And that's why they blew up, because people like initially saw them and saw themselves in them. Not that they did not taking anything away from Grandmaster Flash and all the other groups. They were just vibing off of the music scene. I mean, if you look at the artists, Prince and P-Funk and all these other artists, everybody was gimmicky. But hip-hop was like regular people that made music. Years later, while interviewing Ghostface, we talked about this time. You know, we kept it hardcore, but it, it was hard for everybody to go ahead and grasp hold of that because it wasn't in the mainstream. Right. It was only being programmed with that other kind of music. So, you know, now that that been rocking for so long, everybody's a little tired of that now. They want the pure back. Right. You know, because history repeats itself. So uh, that's what we're doing with the Supreme clientele. Yeah, it, it sounds it sounds extremely raw, which is what really set y'all off from the start. You know, y'all was so raw with, you know, when Protect Your Neck came out and Method Man and, and that first album, it was something that we never heard here before. You know what I'm saying? Right. It was all West Coast cats at that time, and y'all was yep. coming out of Staten. Exactly. And, you know, exactly. I remember y'all at the Impact Convention in Atlantic City, all squeezed into a van, coming down there, handing them tapes word, out, word. y'all. We, had, we put work in. I know, y'all did you know a lot of work. Y'all did word. a lot of work. We said start like from the ground. Word, and it's still like that. It's still like that, you, you know. know? We ain't gonna never go ahead and be too big that we can't go ahead and understand what we here for. Right. We here to, to go ahead and unify us, man. All right, all right. All means necessary. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, after 36 Chambers, the Wu members release highly anticipated solo projects. Hey, Method Man, this is Donald Trump, and I'm in Palm Beach, and we're all waiting for your album. Let's get going, man. Everybody's waiting for this album. Thank you for listening. The Backstory Podcast is a Pod is Good production. Produced by DJ One Plus Two. Written, researched, and hosted by yours truly, Colby Cole. Thanks for listening.